your health is really a combination of your genes and your environment. And nobody knows what that combination is exactly. A number that's often thrown out there is 25% genetics and 75% environmental. If you're a smoker, for example, that's the number one thing that's going to be causing your health to decline. Uh, really how 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 uh how heavy does does smoking actually you know affect someone's health like does it oh it's huge it totally magnifies your risk uh, and one reason is that some of the compounds in smoking in cigarettes i should go on and directly modify your dna they really i mean they'll they'll <laughs> bugger up your dna so to speak ladies and gentlemen the kids in the room podcast the kids in the room podcast that's right that's right brought to you by move faces all right all right all right hey everyone welcome to the kids in room podcast wow tell us uh who you are tell us what's special about you yeah welcome michael well thanks great to be here i'm michael snyder i'm a professor and chair of genetics at stanford university i also direct the center for genomics and personalized medicine our shtick is all about trying to transform healthcare, and we're trying to use big data to do that Wow, big data to do that. Yeah, we got to use that. So what type of big data? Are we using like wearables? What type of technology? How are we it's doing It's all that? kinds, actually. It started with genome sequencing and actually doing deep, what are called omics profiling, doing a lot of biochemical measurements out of people's blood and urine, even something called the microbiome, which is your stool. We actually analyze all the bacteria in your stool. So we basically try and collect as much data as possible on people while they're healthy. Uh, and and we also do wearables, as you point out. So it's all kinds of different data, and love to dive into it in detail. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, let's dive into it. So let's start some things off. You know, um, you know, I know there's this uh, technology you guys are leveraging. I know you've been in genetics. How did you kind of start off? How did you get into this? And yeah, yeah. Well, it starts with this premise that we talked about earlier. The you know the healthcare system in my mind is broken. We're very focused on treating people when they're ill as opposed to trying to keep them healthy. Nearly every decision about your health is based on population-based measurements, meaning uh, they'll look at you based on population averages. As one example, you probably have been taught since you were little that your temperature when you put a thermometer in your mouth is 98.6. It turns out on average that's wrong. The number is more like 97.5. I myself am 97.3 for the most part. Sometimes I've been dropping a little bit over the last eight years. But more importantly, there's a spread. For some people, 25% of people, it's 94.6. For the 70, what's called the 75th quartile, it's 99.1. So why is that a big deal? Well, it means in today's world, if your normal healthy baseline is 94.6. You walk into a physician's office, they measure you at 98.6. They're going to tell you you're healthy. Everything's great. What are you doing here? Go home. Uh, and in reality, you're up four degrees over your baseline. I guarantee you're not healthy. So that illustrates the point that we need to know what our personal baselines are so we can detect disease pretty quickly. We can see when if things are shifting, you can catch that if you know what your baseline is. So this is like kind of like customizing like health for each individual? It is actually, yeah. And it's trying to get a complete picture as well. We, we take lots and lots of measurements. So one way to think about this is like a jigsaw puzzle. In my mind, healthcare as it operates today, there if you have a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, we're looking at 10 of those. Uh, we're actually capable of looking at 800 of them. And we don't do that. But there are new technologies out there that let you look 
at your health in a lot more detail than it's been done. It's at the research phase, although what, what our, that's what our lab does. We do a lot of research with this and things that look like they're working, we'll spin off companies around them. So the reality is uh, we think that with deep, deep big data, profiling people while they're healthy, you can see a really good picture of people's health. And then actually if that starts shifting, we can catch that. Wow, catch it early. Yep. So this is basically like uh, genetically, we're kind of tracking people genetically based off of you know how they're made up individually. Yeah, but in maybe to refine that a little bit. So we sequence your genome once. That's your DNA, which helps you predict your risk for certain disease. A good example is uh, there are people who have mutations in a, a gene called BRCA. Angelina Jolie had this, and that puts her at very high risk for breast cancer. She actually uh, had some inkling to it because it was running in her family. Her mother died of breast cancer uh, in her 50s. And so Angelina Jolie knew this was running in her family. She got tested for it. Turns out she has a BRCA mutation. And so she's actually had her, her breasts and her ovaries removed as a consequence of this. Yeah. And, uh, and again, that's what I'm not saying you have to do that. Minimally, you would get screened more if you knew that information. So that's the power of genome sequencing. You can see what diseases you're at risk for. It's not perfect, we have a long ways to go, but you can get some inkling as to what diseases you're at risk for and then be on the lookout for those, get screened for those. That's one form of the big data. The other form is actually we do these deep, as I mentioned, omics or molecular measurements on your blood and urine. And what they do is they give insight into kind of the molecular changes that might be shifting uh, and can give you hints that something might be off. And, and um, a good example is that as we are profiling people, we're either doing um, genome sequencing or doing these deep biochemical profiling. Some people we did imaging. We found from the first 109 people we were following, nearly half, 49 of them had a major health discovery. And sometimes this is a big deal. We, and they were all discovered pre-symptomatically, meaning we could see something was wrong from these deep profiles before they felt sick. And that's a big deal. Usually by the time you're sick, especially with cancer, it's too late. Things have already headed down a bad path and you'll never reverse it. So the power of all this is that we can actually profile people while they're healthy and actually see if something looks like it's shifted, it's not quite right. Or from the, their, their genome sequence, we can make predictions about their genetic risk for disease. And so what that means, again, we can uh, see these things, we can see when things are shifted early and then take action on it. And, and we've found a number of things that have been life-saving. One is we caught someone with early lymphoma. We caught two people with pre-cancers. We caught two people with serious heart issues. And no one technology found this. Sometimes it was the genome sequencing. Sometimes it was these deep molecular profiles. Sometimes the wearables, which we haven't talked about yet, but we do a lot with wearables. Uh, and we've caught some pretty important things there as well. And as I say, in many cases, these have proven to be life-saving. Wow. That's pretty deep. So like, you know, when we're thinking about things like this um, currently, like, for example, like, you know, we know that there's uh, demographics that have different health issues. You know, we, we call them cultures or races or whatever it may be. Like, why does it happen since we're all homo sapiens? Why do we have like these these pockets of isolated genetic genes? Or, yeah, well, or variances? We're all, yeah, we're all at risk for something. <laughs> and the one, one way to tell that is from your family history. You can see how things are running in the family. And I mentioned the BRCA case, which puts you at risk for breast and ovarian cancer. But there's a lot of other things like that as well. 
And it, I, I won't get into too much detail. It gets pretty technical. But some parts you can tell just because there are single changes in your DNA, like the BRCA case. Other cases, it's a little bit more complicated. It's probably multiple genes that in, in general can contribute to disease risk. And it actually turns out that all these risks, they're actually in all ethnic groups. But you're right, some ethnic groups are more at higher risk than others. And, and some of that's probably genetics and some of it's probably environmental factors as well. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So things like, you know, um, you know, uh, like, uh, Alzheimer's that's consistent with all human beings, but then there's things like sickle cell and things like that, that are like, kind of like within these certain little isolated groups. That's a classic case. Yeah. Sickle cell is generally, uh, found in Africans and obviously then, uh, you know, African Americans are at higher risk than Caucasians and white folks. So, uh, that is a case of, a of, of a particular mutation basically associated with a particular ethnic group. It's thought in ancient history uh, that that was actually protective, that actually having a sickle cell allele actually helped you fight off malaria, so to speak. So a lot of these things that you think of as deleterious probably have a a healthy side to them as well. Uh, And so it's very fascinating. And and this is why um, this might be diverging a bit, but the CCR5 mutation that actually uh, is what it's what the HIV, the AIDS virus recognizes. There are people running around who don't have the CCR5 uh, gene active, meaning they've got a mutation in it. And those folks are actually protected from AIDS. So you might say, why don't we just go in there and, and delete that out of all folks, all normal folks? Well, it probably has some beneficial roles, uh, and there's some evidence it does. We, we don't fully understand all its beneficial roles, but your genes can be both, they're, they're, they can work both for you and against you in certain cases. Like I say, for the case of HIV, uh, it binds this particular uh, host, host uh, it's called a, a receptor gene, essentially, a receptor. Wow, that's crazy. So it's like, yeah, I think I've, I've read that before, like there were certain like people who had that in pockets of uh, regions and around the world and things like that, who had these, uh, these, these, uh, what did you reference this as? Uh, these DNA variances? Yeah, DNA variants. Yeah, these changes in DNA, they can be protective, like in the case of CCR5. I think that one's found in a lot of ethnic groups. Um, really? Around the world, yeah. Wow. So it's just like random. We don't know like the pattern of it. Yeah, they're, they're what are called rare mutations. So um, there's a certain set of mutations that are just uncommon that are probably popping up sporadically, and, and the CCR5 is one of those cases. But um, I don't know a whole lot about whether that shows up in certain regions more than others. It's possible. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, wow. How does, how does that even start? Like, how do some of these things start? If things like AIDS or HIV, how do these things start? You know, like what happens? Like what triggers these? Do these come from like, you know, typically animals or well, in just some like cases, a human? Sure, yeah. COVID is thought to have jumped from bats into humans. And, and we worry a lot about bird flu. You've, that's one you've probably heard a lot uh, that, you know, uh, it, it obviously influenza is, is, the, is the virus for flu. And that is in animal populations, especially in birds, especially in chickens. And occasionally a variant will jump that looks that that's pretty lethal, actually. And uh, in general, it hasn't spread much. So we've been lucky about that. Uh, but that is a concern that for the case of bird flu, a, a strain will 
jump that actually will spread efficiently. Right now, the, when they jump, they don't spread, but they do kill people when they jump. But COVID's a good case. Obviously, the, the general thought is it's come out of bats and into humans, and that actually obviously spread and it's killed a lot of people, especially older folks and those who have issues probably with their immune system. Right. But even even if we start talking about immune systems, like having like some type of like deficiency or, or some type of error within the, the actual immunity, like if you're not at a baseline of your immunity, isn't that almost like having a deficiency? For example, like if you lack vitamin D3 properly, wouldn't that actually or, or does that count for um, being deficient in some sense or no? Uh, it can. I mean, vitamin D does seem to help in the case of uh, uh, protection. And, and boosting, keeping your immune system uh, healthy, so to speak. Uh, in principle, if we all ate great diets, we'd be getting plenty of vitamin D. <laughs> Normally, we wouldn't have to be doing supplements. I personally do supplements to make sure I have plenty. Um, but yeah, so in some cases, it's just naturally there. In other cases, uh, we, you know, we don't, to be honest, as a population, take very good care of ourselves. Diabetes, you may know, in this country is hugely rampant. Uh, but 9% of people have diabetes in the U.S. and 33% are pre-diabetic, meaning they're not yet diabetic, but they, they may become someday. And 70% of those will become diabetic. So what that means is you're going to see this giant uh, diabetes pandemic coming or endemic, I should say, that it's, it's already here and it's going to get worse. And those folks, if you have diabetes, and I have type 2 diabetes, by the way, uh, yeah, it's pretty surprising because I don't look at everybody assumes people are overweight to be diabetic. That's not always true. Uh, I have a very uh, interesting form. But anyway, uh, people who are diabetic often have uh, substandard immune systems, and that puts them at risk for all kinds of diseases, including viral infections like COVID. So a lot of people with diabetes are actually uh, dying from COVID, probably because they're not fighting off the infection very well. Wow, that's pretty crazy. That's wild. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, hmm, interesting. So if, if we're talking about like genetics and stuff like that, there's companies out there like, you know, 23andMe and Ancestry.com where they do these genetic testing. Um, 23andMe gives you like these, uh, well, well, basically what they're trying to do is you know give these results based off of your dna um of like what you might be more prone to some of the things that you were actually mentioning um uh previously so how accurate are those like when you have to really think about that because like they're using certain algorithms that are proprietary towards them or is that just standard uh it's somewhat standard they're not super accurate they're they're looking at something called complex disease common diseases like coronary artery disease diabetes things that you probably have we all have running in our family uh, my family has diabetes running in it and and uh, on my father's side is heart failure, actually. Um, so we all have different things running in our family, and you can do some level of prediction from that with with the genome sequence with what 23andMe does. It It's not super accurate. It, it works on a small set of people, to be honest. Um, it doesn't work for most people, this prediction. But I think as we get more and more data, as we learn more and more, it'll get more and more accurate. There's another kind of uh, um, genome interpretation that actually is quite accurate. It's the sort, sort I talked about. Like there are certain kinds of disease like BRCA, these familial diseases that are due to single gene mutations. Those you can see. And there's about 100 genes like that, a little less, that if you actually see a mutation in those, they'll tell you exactly what your risk is for getting that disease. And, and so for the case of BRCA1, if you have a mutation there, 
women will have a 50% chance of getting breast cancer or ovarian cancer. And so that's very definitive. If you see the, those mutations, uh, that's, the, that's your odds, 50%. And so that information is useful to people because, again, they can either just get screened more, or in some cases, women who are past their childbearing years typically uh, uh, will go and have mastectomies and overactivities uh, to basically reduce their chances of getting breast or ovarian cancer. Wow, that's interesting. That's, that's wild. So Angelina Jolie had the, her you know, ovaries and stuff removed. Yes. That's even wilder. Why, why, why would she do that? Like, would that like because to, she's at high risk uh, for, because she has a mutation that leads to this high propensity of breast and ovarian cancer. And her mother died of this in her 50s. And so, again, she's not alone. This is, uh, um, it's not that uncommon. And this mutation is, is relatively frequent in, in people and all ethnic races. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It kind of gets kind of complicated. Even when you start thinking about like, you know, ethnicities and then you start adding, you know, these, these, uh, you know, cultural things like race and things like that. Cause it's like so many people are intermixed, you know, yeah. it's like when you start breaking down their DNA of who they are, it's like, you could check something, but it's like, when you break down your DNA, a lot of people aren't really that they they might be an, uh, they might be mixtures. Yeah. yeah. But it doesn't work that clear cut anyway, meaning, uh, most diseases like coronary artery disease, they're in all ethnic groups. Okay. Same with uh, diabetes. And yes, they may be more in some than others. It's not clear to what extent that's due to genetics as opposed to their zip code, because many people are living in, you know, substandard conditions, get have poor access to healthcare and aren't taking care of themselves as well. So some of this might be environmentally induced as well, if that makes sense. So, uh, your, your health is really a combination of your genes and your environment. And nobody knows what that combination is exactly. A number that's often thrown out there is 25% genetics and 75% environmental. If you're a smoker, for example, that's the number one thing that's going to be causing your health to decline. Uh, really how 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 uh how heavy does does smoking actually you know affect someone's health like does it oh it's huge it totally magnifies your risk uh, and one reason is that some of the compounds in smoking in cigarettes i should go on and directly modify your dna they really i mean they'll they'll <laughs> bugger up your dna so to speak and then uh that can lead to cancer is the number one problem especially lung cancer for smokers but it's more than lung cancer it's other cancers as well but smokers are increased risk for coronary artery disease all kinds of diseases so that's a, a very clear-cut case where environmental impact in this case smoking has a pretty profound effect on your health wow what about like ms uh yeah that one's not so clear what's triggering yeah, multiple sclerosis. Yeah, it's just not so clear uh, what's triggering. We wish we knew. Some people like the idea. It might be associated with pathogens and viral infections specifically. Uh, we just don't know. It's pretty clear there is an immunity, a strong immunity effect to it. Might be autoimmune, but uh, we need to figure that one out. It's very debilitating, obviously, and so it would be a great one to figure out. But it's not the only mystery diseases. Type 1 diabetes is known to actually involve probably viral infections and pathogens as well. And yet we still don't fully understand how that happens. Type 1 diabetes, people stop making insulin. They're, they make antibodies. They basically, their immune system attacks their cells that produce insulin. And we don't fully understand how that works. And there's big projects around to try and 
just do that to, to try and understand this. So there's a lot of issues out there. There's a disease that's totally unappreciated called uh, MECFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, that actually two to four percent of people have this. It's mostly ignored. It's not clear what triggers it, probably viral infections, uh, and that's out there too that no one's ever solved. So we've got a lot of important medical mysteries that do need to be solved, that's for sure. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. That's deep. That's a lot of deep stuff. That's, yep. that's, that's, a, that's pretty wild. It's amazing. You could go all day with this stuff. But so, so now that we're talking about things like, you know, um, uh, viral things that could possibly uh, cause the trigger other diseases and things like that, how does that work? So, like, or, or did you say like other sicknesses or like, how yeah, does that work? it's not clear. Uh, so, how do viruses trigger long term effects? I mean, certainly short term, obviously, they get in respiratory viruses like. COVID or other things, they get in and bugger up your lungs. Uh, and, and, you know, that obviously causes illness. But some of them can cause long-term effects. And how that works isn't clear. My case is very, very interesting. Actually, I mentioned I'm type 2 diabetic. Well, first of all, it was predicted from my genome, of all things. We, use, we sequence my genome uh, and my DNA uh, from the analysis predicted as high risk for type 2 diabetes. And so because we were doing these deep biochemical profiles, I mentioned following me very closely, one of the things we were following was in fact glucose. And sure enough, my glucose shot through the roof and it turned out it was right after a nasty viral infection. It wasn't COVID, it was something called respiratory syncytial virus. So what we think is that I'm genetically predisposed and then the viral infection triggered this. Uh, so uh, it got to the point where I was classified as diabetic, and I actually was able to get it under control initially by just changing my diet and increasing my exercise. I was uh, biking a bit, but I doubled my biking and then started running and actually brought it down. It took about a year to bring it down to normal, although three years later it shot up again. Uh, a, I'd stop running. B, I got a second viral infection. It's not clear whether one or both of those triggered it. I think it's probably the combination. Uh, and so it, it, what's interesting is that in my case, when I first became diabetic and also when it happened later, I could actually see um, not the, my DNA sequence change, but there's something called epigenetics where your actual DNA can get modified. Uh, and, and this is true as well there's this is um it's known that nutrition exercise aging can actually lead to modifications in your dna and it affects then how your genes are expressed so in my case it's pretty clear the viral infection triggered this modification on dnas that actually triggered the diabetes at least that's the strong association we have so uh and this whole area is totally unexplored why is this a big deal Two to four percent of people who get COVID uh, wind up becoming type two diabetics uh, and or type one, and it's not one hundred percent clear. My prediction is some of this is due to epigenetic changes. These these DNA changes they don't change your sequence. That's fixed, but they'll change actually the modifications on your DNA, and that leads to changes in the genes you express, which in turn causes these diseases. I don't know if this is getting too heavy-handed here, but uh, anyway, that the, the bottom line out of all this is that your genetics certainly has a major factor in you know your disease risk. But uh, environmental factors can influence this as well. It's very fascinating, totally not understood. Uh, but it does uh, lead to you know, important things. A, a, a good example is that we know nutrition is important for your health. 
And we actually, there's studies showing that, you know, nutrition can affect the modifications of your DNA. So, uh, so eating better probably is, is a big deal. Um, the other area is exercise. We know exercise keeps you healthy, right? Everybody knows that. Uh, it turns out there, there are studies out there that show that exercise also can modify your DNA. Again, not the sequence, it's just epigenetics. It's changes the, the modifications on your DNA that probably affect the genes that you're expressed. And probably a lot of these affect your immune system. So if you have a healthy immune system, you're going to live a long time, uh, generally. Uh, if you yeah, and yeah, if you have a problematic immune system, you're at risk for all kinds of things: cancer, coronary artery disease, all kinds of health issues. And what about autoimmune? You mentioned a lot of things about autoimmune. I heard this right? a couple of times. And it's like, you know, what signals do we have as far as like, you know, autoimmune or of being like some type of like stress or self hate or different types of emotion we put onto ourselves? Yeah, it's known that stress is associated with a lot of diseases, diabetes in particular, as and heart disease as well. I don't know a whole lot about other kinds of diseases like autoimmune, how stress impacts that. I'm sure it does. Stress in general does affect your immune system. Uh, higher stress leads to more inflammation, uh, and that in turn, uh, you know, creates issues. Uh, around you know how you fight diseases and stuff. So people with diabetes, they actually have a somewhat crippled immune system. It's slower, it doesn't respond as, as uh, the magnitude's reduced uh, in response to viral infections. So um, yeah, so keeping a good immune system is a big deal. And, and we know that stress, nutrition, exercise all affects that. Right. That, 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 exactly how it affects it. We don't know. That's part of our research. It's to try and figure this out. That is wild. We're still guessing a lot of these things. We're it's trying totally to figure this guessing, stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just wonder, like, how much do our thoughts contribute to these autoimmune types of diseases that might be triggered? Right. Like, just like, because, like, I know we're saying, we're saying, like, okay, exercise can help. Right. Right. We're saying, you know, also, uh, what else? Uh, healthy, nu nu nutritious types right. of diet right. will help. So, how much does, have we measured how much do thoughts trigger those things or well, actually help to as well? No, it's a great question. I, I think in particular meditation is generally thought to be beneficial and that's totally not understood exactly how it works. It affects, uh, you know, your, we have sympathetic and parasympathetic uh, nervous systems that actually keep us functioning well and keep us mentally healthy. And, and some, it's thought that meditation influences those uh, quite a bit. And so, uh, but how this actually works biochemically, nobody knows. And that would be a pretty cool thing to figure out. Yeah. I just always wonder that because you, you notice a lot of people or people that I've noticed typically who have a lot of, you know, self-hate, they kind of just don't like themselves. So they're always, they're pressuring themselves a lot. I usually, I will see them like say, Hey man, they'll usually come up with some type of like, you know, autoimmune type of disease. Crohn's, right, or even MS. Most of the people that I've noticed that have that, they have this similar trait or personality. Not necessarily just, you know, they probably have some genetic variants that's there. But I wonder if, like, you know, like you said earlier, we all have these 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 type of um, uh, genes that we carry, but they have to be triggered sometimes, right? Well, I think uh, two things to comment about that. One is this issue about depression. Sometimes the disease probably causes a depression. Uh, it's very clear in chronic fatigue syndrome, and, and at least in some cases of MS, it's not because they were depressed they got the disease. It's pretty clear there are people who seem by most 
criteria to be very happy, you know, uh, up, you know, mentally healthy individuals who wind up getting depressed once they get the disease. So, so you have to watch out for that. But it's not to say I'm, I'm I, I think it's likely. It's just not understood that people who are depressed. Well, we this we know from some of our research, your immune system actually again gets a bit crippled when you are depressed. So I, I think you you actually don't fight diseases as well i think when you are actually mentally depressed yeah and i also wonder like you know if if we're saying that you know there's people who might come with like you know uh these type of uh these depressions prior or or uh well they had these uh these illnesses but then they actually that caused the actual depression how much how much um research do we have on this you know prior before they ever had the disease that there might have been some type of yeah i would say it's very unexplored it's a great area i think this whole mental health and how it affects you biochemically it's vastly underexplored so it's an area that we've just started moving into recently with our big data going back to how we started this we really want to use big data to better understand depression you know what makes it uh worse uh, and how you can improve yourself uh you know in response to certain treatments and so we we have several you know different kinds of treatments some of our folks are doing and we're trying to see how they respond to certain kinds of 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 effects and that's one of the biggest things about our research we're trying to focus on the individual not just try to do general treatments that only you know, uh, work some of the time. They we under, they probably work some of the time because they work on some people and not others. And that's one of the key parts of our research. We're trying to understand, you know, the individual uh, and how they'll respond. We're all different. We all have different microbiomes. So the, the microbes in our gut actually play a very, very critical role in our health. And we don't fully understand that either, but they have an interplay with our immune system. And we know that the, it's linked. Your microbiome is very linked to depression, autism, all these mental health issues. And so, um, by then trying, we're, to, we're trying to see whether certain kinds of interventions, say through nutrition, can influence uh, people's, you know, biochemical and uh, mental health is is one of the plans here. So, for example, fiber. You, Americans eat a fraction of the fiber they should be eating. And if you talk to one of my colleagues, he's a expert in this area, Justin Sonnenberg, yeah, he'll tell you that we eat about three times less fiber than we should. Some people say it's five times less fiber than we should. Um, and fiber clearly helps promote microbiome growth and nice, healthy diversity, which is very important, again, for your for both your physical health and probably your mental health from all the data that are out there. Yeah, that's interesting. So you're basically suggesting that people need to eat more fiber because they're just not doing it. That's for that certainly is true. Yes, we we know that's the case. Uh, that people need to eat more fiber, and and probably a diverse set of fibers. We're actually we have studies going on right now to actually look at the effects of different fiber and exactly what they do. So we found one kind of fiber that's very common in in metamucil and things actually lowers your cholesterol. Again, it lowers it in most people, but not every person. And then there's other common fiber called inulin that's found in um, yeah, uh, a variety of different things, fruits and uh, other things. And, and that one actually has been suggested to do lots of stuff. We, we couldn't duplicate that. And in general, it doesn't have much effect on your cholesterol or your glucose, but it does seem to improve 
for a few people, it does improve their cholesterol, even though it generally doesn't work. There's a few cases where it does work. So we're trying to understand how individuals will respond so that we can make personalized treatments, uh, both in the food they eat, their activities, and even the medicines later. Uh, but the goal will be to keep people healthy through personalized in interventions. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually uh, worked on a, an application that I was uh, at a startup with. Um, yeah, it's called uh, it was called Biomarker. So yeah, okay. we're in the bio field, and basically what we would do is we would uh, measure where we would basically leverage wearable technology, okay. right? And we would use that to create or to kind of diagnose what type of supplements would be useful, kind of debunk them. Like if this supplement was working for you or if this medication was working for you, did there, for example, if we would choose like these uh, certain focuses, like for example, sleep, if you want to increase your sleep, your exercise and things like that, we would give you like this output of like these results based off of uh -huh. that. And so we yeah, worked great. with tons so of data it's evidence based. Yeah, doing treatments and looking evidence-based outcomes is great. Yeah, we use Fitbit, you know, um, what's it? Uh, all the other different types of wearables, the the ring, I forgot it was Oran. Or Oran, ring, yeah. Yeah, we yeah well, you'll like what we're up to. So that's another big part of our monitoring. So I mentioned all the biochemical, the genome sequencing, but we're doing a ton with wearables. So uh, especially in the air, smartwatches are ring. So you can see I'm wearing four of these smartwatches right now. I normally wear a ring that, that fell off can't see because I'm wearing headphones, but I have hearing aids. They all track my activity, heart rate, heart rate variability. I know a variety of different things. Uh, some of them track skin temperatures. Some of them track uh, something called galvanic stress response. It's actually conductance on your skin. And these, these measurements are very powerful, as, as you would know from your startup, because they can really give you some insight into your health state. When you're stressed, your resting heart rate goes up. Um, and, and that's very easy to pick up with a smartwatch. So we've been using these wearables to basically monitor people's health at an individual level. And, uh, and it's turned out to be very, very powerful. We've, we found that you could actually tell when you get an infectious disease from a simple smartwatch. And the story, the way we got into this was actually, I figured out my Lyme disease of all things with a smartwatch um, and, a, and something called a pulse ox that measures your blood oxygen. And the story behind that was I was helping my brother put up fences in rural Massachusetts. And then two weeks later was flying to Norway uh, and through Frankfurt. And on this last flight from Frankfurt to Oslo, Norway, um, you can tell I measure myself all the time, I noticed that my blood oxygen was running abnormally low. It normally would run a little low on an airplane. That, that turns out to be common. But this was abnormally low, and it didn't come back to normal when we landed. And I saw my heart rate was up from my smartwatch, and I later learned my skin temperature was up. And so I knew something was up. This all before symptoms had appeared. And then later symptoms did show up. I did go to, a, 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 I got a, a little bit of fever off and on. So I went to a doctor there. I warned him it might be Lyme because it was two weeks after I was in this, uh, help, helping my brother with these fences in this Lyme infested area. And then uh, uh, wouldn't you know it, yeah, he pulls my blood and says, yep, you've got these immune cells up. Uh, you've got a bacterial infection. He wanted to give me actually some penicillin. And what used for treating Lyme is doxy, doxycycline. And I said, no, no, I need doxycycline, not penicillin. It got a little tense because most doctors don't like their patients. Uh, I'm not actually uh, probably a very good 
uh, patient for most doctors because I have my own ideas. Anyway, uh, he gave in, gave me doxycycline. It, it, it did clear it up. And when I got back, I, I tested it. You take it for two weeks. I was still taking it. Uh, sure enough, I was lying positive. And I'd given blood right before I left that as negative. So I converted during that time. So it's a very well-controlled experiment. And it turns out that, yeah, so because of my smartwatch, I never got a bullseye, but because because of my smartwatch and my pulse ox, I actually could tell something was off pre-symptomatically. So we went on to show that for respiratory viruses, I I'd had three other illnesses, probably from respiratory viruses. Every single time I was ill, we could do the, look back at the data, two years of data. Sure enough, we could see my increased heart rate, my increased skin temperature. And, and so that then led us uh, to basically propose, we wrote algorithms, that we can tell when you're getting sick from your smartwatch before you know it. And it works about 80% of the time, okay? So when the pandemic came, the COVID pandemic came, we ramped this up big time, as you might imagine. Uh, we have uh, now 10,000 people in our study, but right away we showed that you could see a jump up arresting heart rate in advance of symptoms, the, the, the median time, the mean time, the average time is about four days prior to symptom onset. And, but for some people, it'll be as many as 10 days. And some people who are asymptomatic, we can still see this jump up in heart rate. So we now have a real-time detection system for, for monitoring COVID. We can tell uh, when you're getting COVID from uh, a smartwatch and send you a red alert. We, well, I should say we can tell when you're getting a stress. We don't know for sure it's, it's COVID. We know that your resting heart rate has jumped up abnormally. Something's up. So we send you a red alert. And uh, you then, you know, can you're, you're supposed to tell us what you think is going on. Now, uh, it's not specific for COVID. Other illnesses can do this. But mental stress, going back to things you raised, they actually can trigger it as well. Um, and other sorts of things. If you do excessive exercise, like run a marathon, your heart rate will stay up for several days. That'll set red alerts. Uh, and, and drinking excessively, not um, two drinks for, with dinner, that won't do it. But if you really tie one on, your heart rate will be high the next day. You'll get a red alert. So the point out of all this is that we can tell from a smartwatch when you're shifted from your baseline, and some of the times it's COVID. I can even tell you one more fun story around this if you want to hear it. I do want to hear it. Let's go. All right. So uh, um, we just had just set up this COVID the alerting system and love to have the listeners, you know, sign up for this. It's innovations with an S dot Stanford dot edu slash wearables innovations dot Stanford dot edu slash wearables. So feel free to sign up for the study. But what, uh, naturally, I'm a member of the study. And uh, one morning, I was getting uh, ready to go on a trip to New York City. I was in my house in Palo Alto, and I was a little bit congested. So I did an antigen, a COVID antigen test, and it came out negative. Uh, I looked at my smartwatch, and it was a bright red positive. I had a, I had a red alert. But because my antigen test said negative, I went ahead and got on the plane. Big mistake. Because the next day I was in New York City, before I could go to the meeting, you had to get COVID tested. Sure enough, I was bright positive then. Uh, and so I basically spent a week in a hotel room, in a tiny little hotel room in New York, all because I didn't listen to my smartwatch. I listened to my COVID antigen test. So what this means is that these, these watches are very, very sensitive because they're measuring you 24-7. That's why they're powerful health monitors. These things are following you. 
24-7, 365 days a year, as long as you keep them charged. So you can see when you're shifted from your baseline. I think these are going to be powerful health monitors. And what they don't do is they don't tell you exactly what's wrong with you. We need more data. That's why we want more data. I think if we get more data types, we'll be able to tell the difference, for example, between excessive drinking and running a marathon. That one we can already tell versus getting a, a, a viral illness. Now, whether we'll ever, ever be able to tell the difference between COVID and, and influenza, I, I don't know. I'm probably not, possibly not. Um, uh, there's a chance we can. But can we tell the difference between a bacterial infection and a viral infection? I'm, I'm sure we can from a smartwatch. Yeah, that's interesting. So you mentioned also the wearable technology. You, What were you exactly looking for that was in the actual wearable that detected a possible trend of or, or, or possible signal of COVID. Yeah. What the, did you look for exactly? Sure. The number one thing is resting heart rate. Uh, it turns out your heart rate just jumps up when you get stressed or, or ill. And, and if you're continuously stressed, say from viral infection or mental stress, it'll stay up for a while. And we need as little as two beats per minute to be able to see that someone shifted from their baseline. And that's very, very easy to pick up. So your resting heart rates normally, it depends who you are, but. It ranges between, say, 60 and 80 for most people. And so with just jumping up by two beats per minute, we can easily pick that up and tell you that you there's a stress event going on. Uh, and so basically, most cases, you can contextualize that. Like I said, if you've been drinking, you were out drinking too much last night and you have a, one of these you know, red alerts, well, you ignore it. You kind of know what's going on. But if you're just sitting around doing your usual stuff and suddenly you're getting these red alerts, something's off. And it's probably either mental stress or, it, or it's going to be, say, a respiratory viral infection. And so you can actually, it, you know, the, the ultimate plan is that you would go get tests and go get a viral test to see if, you know, you are infected uh, so you don't go out and infect a bunch of other people. And so we think this is going to be the future that everybody should be wearing these sensors. And I notice you're not wearing a smartwatch right now, so that's kind of a shame. You could actually be following your health right this moment. Where are you wearing one? So actually, I, I do have an, an Apple Watch, and I also do have a Fitbit. It's just not charged. <laughs> it's just out. Yeah. That, well, that's the number one problem. Yeah, especially the Apple Watch, right? People charge it overnight, which is one of the best times to tell uh, for for health monitoring. Right. Yeah. So 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 to to chime in what you're saying, like one of the biggest things, why like originally I I got my um my smartwatch or my Apple Watch. I got it when I was at you know working at the you know the bio company, so mm -hmm. biomarker. So when I was building the actual application, this is when I actually got it. So I used it for that, and then I also had a Fitbit. So I was I was literally like. I was a uh, wearable up. Listed, I was yeah. wearable up. Yeah, I was. I was pretty wearable. Excellent. People were like, "Dude, what are you doing?" I was like, "Uh." So I didn't take him off the wall because people were just like, "What is the wrong with you?" I was like, "Uh." Well, I'm wearing four, so yeah. But everybody knows I'm yeah, a little weird, so yeah. that's okay. You know, it's just like. But you, this is the future. See, I, here's how I see it. You don't drive your car around without uh, a dash sensors, right? Yeah, your every car has sensors on it, and yeah. race cars have 400 sensors. Even the average car has a number of sensors, and likewise, you have a dashboard that tells you all these things your gas running low and your light heats up uh, you know all this stuff and yet here we are running around without sensors and i would argue the human body is a lot more important than a car and all we're counting on are internal sensors and they're kind of slow and clunky so these devices are way way better and i think this is just it's a no-brainer to me that we should all be just like you drive a car 
with a dashboard and sensors, that's what we should be doing for our health. I mean, I feel like our bodies are good sensors. I just feel like our bodies are bad at interpreting them. For example, like, you know, like we don't know, like, like you're getting these pulses and things like that from these actual wearable technologies. But at the same time, it's coming from your body. But our brains are not smart enough to tell us or are not good enough to tell us, hey, look, this might be this, this might be that. So we use wearables to kind of leverage that. Yeah, in a sense, that's right. Yeah, we're... Um you know, basically it's saying the sensitivity is too low the way we currently operate. Yes, the signals are showing there, but, you know, and, and you also probably, maybe we're hardwired that way because we don't want our brain kind of over-triggering these things, whereas the wearable devices we can trigger, we can take control, we can tune it to whatever we want. So we've set these alarms to go off every six weeks on average. Uh, and we're going to get soon have it set up so the person can actually adjust it. Why are we doing that? Well, one reason is that if you're a healthcare worker, you probably want to have increased sensitivity, meaning, you know, if see whether you're getting ill quickly uh, versus, say, maybe if you live in a remote part of the country, you don't need to do that as much. Uh, and, and, yeah, so if you if you increase the sensitivity, you're going to get more of these non-COVID alerts. Whereas if you reduce the sensitivity, then you'll be slow in detecting your illness. So we, we want to let people decide for themselves what the right sensitivity is for them. Yeah, let's touch on some other stuff that I, I was mentioning this a little bit sure. earlier. But when we, when we started talking about things like, you know, 23andMe, these, these, these DNA types of tests, and we start talking about the accuracy of these, you know, you, you see people walking around or, or sharing social media, hey, I'm, I'm this percentage of this and et cetera. And it's like, you know, how, how accurate is that? You know, and, and then and then you dig in even further, you have like, you know, uh, different Native American DNA. And it's like there's variances between, you know, or there's almost this parity between, you know, uh, you know, uh, Asian ancestry and also Native American DNA. And then it's like, does that make sense what I'm asking? Yeah. What you're picking on more is people's ancestry where they come from rather than health per se and that's fine and i would argue that in general it's pretty accurate you can tell you know it, ancient times where you know some those particular regions of the dna come from and, and as you point out a lot of people are mixed and have very mixed backgrounds and in fact we're all mixed we all have somewhere between two to four percent of neanderthal dna Right. So we <laughs> we have other kinds of DNA that come from a long time ago. Uh, and um, yeah, so at the end of the day, it's going to come down to for the individual knowing what particular variants put you in what kinds of genetic risk. And that's going to be person specific. And it's going to vary from one person to the next across all ethnic groups well you know there's a lot of people those they'll, they'll be arguing hey well i have this native american dna but it's not showing up and etc and then there's like you know wh why does that not happen for those people who feel that way uh, i'm not sure what you mean by it's not showing up. so for example they'll have they'll, they'll be testing you know you'll see people in quora and things like that they'll be arguing hey look i took the 23 million test and it showed that i had no native american ancestry and it showed i wasn't this blah blah, blah and etc and so they were a little bit confused well, what, there's a lot of th things to unpack in that <laughs> comment. One is, uh, you know, I, I'm not an expert. We are, we are doing some work with Native American groups. And it's more than just DNA makes you part of a tribe. So meaning uh, you can be part of a tribe, 
based on uh, you know just tribal association that has it's independent of DNA. So there is that component to it. But you're right if you were to go back to you know more older times, you know what fraction of DNA is traditionally associated with Native Americans? Sure, there is uh, you know DNA associated with those with that particular ethnic background. Uh, and, and most groups, as you point out, that especially in the U.S., are very mixed. Uh, so it's, it's very common for people to have DNA from different ethnic backgrounds. Yeah, but then there's like people who just don't get these signals on their reports. And so it's like, you know, there's also like what genetic recombination and stuff like that. Like, does these do these cause like some type of effects for these outcomes? Um, well, I, I, I think it really comes down to the actual DNA changes the DNA sequence you have. Uh, I think we're too hung up on skin color as a definition of race, right? I think that's where a lot of the stuff comes from. And I don't, uh, to me, that's not very important. Uh, it's really the genetic variants that lead to propensity for disease when you look at it from a health standpoint. And, and that's what counts, trying to understand what variants you have that will put you at risk for certain diseases, whether it's diabetes or, as you point out, autoimmune disease, things like that. And so I think that's why ultimately sequencing people's DNA so that based on their individual DNA sequence, we can make a prediction of what things they're at risk for in, in as accurate a fashion as possible is really what counts. And, and things like skin color in my opinion, don't matter. But what about like things like genetic recombination? Like how yeah. does that like work? Like Yeah, well, that's a way of just um, mixing up your DNA. So uh, yeah, you obviously get half your DNA from your mom and the other half from your father. Uh, and basically that as you, you know, produce kids, <laughs> the DNA does recombine so that what goes into your kids is a, is a bit of a scrambled form of that, but still some from the mother, from ultimately the father and the mother from before that. So they, that does get passed along. But the combinatorics, uh, the combinations, will, will depend on exactly where those recombination events occurred. But you can map all that out now with the genome sequence. You see, you could see what changes, regardless of whether they're from your mother or father, what changes there? If we knew which ones are associated with disease, then we can make better predictions about disease risk. That's what really counts in my mind. Right now, we're just not very good at that. Mm. But we will get good at that someday. We will know what changes in general. It will get a little bit tricky with the common combinations because there's a very, very large number of combinations that can lead. Yeah, because that's, that's kind of the thing that I'm always looking at. It's like, if we're talking about genetic recombination. It's like, you know, do we inherit, like we're, we're inheriting 23 chromosomes we're supposed to roughly from both parents, right? right? But it's like, do we do we actually do that if we have a genetic recombination? Because if we get a little bit more for chromosomes from the other or vice versa, like how does that affect us? Like, you know, Oh, you're still getting basically half your DNA from your mom and half from your dad. <laughs> you still get it, even with genetic recombination. Yeah, because but uh, not an even amount of from their parents' parents' parents or uh, paternally it, or maternal. Yeah, I don't think we have to get in that kind of detail. I think it, in general, you're yeah, you should just think about it. You get half from your mom, half from your dad, and then half from each of those grandparents. So it starts. To, it's a quarter, quarter, quarter. Mm, all the way across for the most part but it's actual amount like i don't know if you have siblings but your you know other family members will get 
the half as well, but it won't be the exact same half. Right. Right. Because <laughs> yeah. the way those DNAs, and that's what counts. What like what parts did you get? Versus what parts, say, did your brother or sister get that can differ? And it does differ. It always differs because it, it is a sort of random assortment that uh, your family members have. And at the end, though, if you want to predict your risk for genetic diseases, it's really a matter of adding up those risk changes, if you will, that are associated with your family members, and they're specific for each person. So you could be at high risk for something, and your brother at lower risk because he didn't inherit the same exact DNA that you did from the same parents. Does right, that which, make sense? Yeah, right, so it would be genetic recombination. Correct. Right? So this correct. is what I'm saying. Like it is, it, it does seem to be very imperative or important in general that we have this, right? Because it's like, or we understand it, that we're not going to get this equal amount from exact parents, exactly from their parents, 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 and et Yeah, it's not the same uh, DNA. But it, so again, yes, we are, we are saying the same thing, sort of. So because of recombination, yes, you wind up getting different DNA segregating you as opposed, as opposed to your brothers and sisters. Uh, but you still, at the end of the day, need to know what those changes are to be able to make risk predictions. Right, right. So another question is, how does genetics work? Um, I don't know what sense you mean. I mean, I think we're all, you know, we're basically 99.9% .9 identical to one another. Humans are very, very closely related, and we're pretty close to chimpanzees. We're 98% identical to chimpanzees. So uh, those 0.1%, in the case of humans, you know, they make us different uh, to some extent. Uh, the environment does as well, as we talked about earlier. So um, that 0.1% can be important. It affects eye color, it affects behavior. Um, it affects all kinds of things, and that's what makes us different. It's that 0.1%, at least at the genetic side. Uh, we also get, oops, we get a little bit different because, again, our environmental exposures that we talked about earlier can impact uh, how our genes are expressed and kinds of uh, these modifications on DNA I mentioned, this epigenetics that can have an effect as well. So, uh, and, and that's why also then some people, you'll see identical twins. There's examples of this where young identical twins, one dies of COVID and the other doesn't. And presumably that's due to, because one of them had a different environmental history than the other and was able to better fight the infection. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that that's really interesting that, that that happens to people, and it's always like this like weird thing that it does happen. But when you start thinking and understanding about DNA and genetics and how it works, it's kind of a luck of a draw. It's kind of like a a gamble that you get it in some sense. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, so, in that sense. But on the other hand, then there are things you can do to try and mitigate that. Say you are dealt with a hand that puts you at higher risk for diabetes. Well, then. Try not to get overweight, right? Number one thing, uh, don't smoke. It will also increase your chance of getting diabetes. Uh, certainly if you're at risk for lung cancer, smoking is like, you know, crazy. You're just totally putting yourself at very high risk for lung cancer. So, yeah, so there are things, you, there are actions you could take to better, you know, improve your health. Yeah, you also mentioned some stuff about like, you know, um, they have the Neanderthal DNA, uh, I thought it was like only like, um, uh, what was it? Uh, I thought it was like mostly uh, sub-Saharan Africa or, you know, people who were like 100% um, per se African in general who didn't have the actual Neanderthal DNA. 
Uh, they may have less because there may have been more. It's thought that there was in, interbreeding a long time ago mm-hmm. between Europeans and and Neanderthals and so right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like probably oh. more in, in people of European descent, right? Because I always thought it was like the opposite. Like everybody outside of Africa had some percentage of uh, Neanderthal DNA and Denisovan DNA, depending on if you were towards the rider side. Yeah, Asia. I don't know a whole lot about the Denisovan stuff, but that's a great right. question. But I I know for Neanderthal, so everything you said is correct. Yeah. I wonder how much that affects us. Like, you know, like I always wonder, like when I'm seeing the D, you know, the, the Neanderthal DNA, I'm like, fuck, how much does that affect me? Yeah, it's like, a good question. I, <laughs> I don't think we fully know yet. It's been suggested that some people who may be uh, better, less uh, at risk for severe COVID have a certain Neanderthal locus. I don't know if that's held up uh, or not. I haven't followed that. But yeah, we're uh, still digging and stuff. I we mean, are. Like, and uh, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, people need to make associations between these. Uh, these Neanderthal changes, if you will, yeah. and what, how they're protective and how they put people at risk. Yeah, I think, I think the Neanderthals gave me a lot of hair, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. But, uh, <laughs> they gave me hair. <laughs> well, maybe I need more of them because I'm uh, pretty short on hair. I didn't say on the head, but you know, like everywhere in your body, <laughs> oh, I like, see. <laughs> uh, I, see. I, have a, yeah, I, I don't think I'm touching that one. That's out of my area of expertise. You know, like you just see people like they don't have no hair. And you're like, wow, does that happen? Like what yeah. happened to me? Like, yeah. it's just like, well, oh, the Neanderthal DNA showed up. But it's been suggested that Neanderthals are redheads. So <laughs> there you but go. I don't know. Got how. some redheads in the family too. That's <laughs> oh, okay. There you go. Maybe. Yeah. So, <laughs> Why do you know these are these are interesting questions? Why do people you know? Because uh, I want to I want to get on age. I want to get on age and genetics. Yeah. Why do people age? Yeah. Well, genetics is clearly a big component. You'll see these families right of of centenarians. People live to be a hundred years old, and so there's no question there's a genetic component to this. And people haven't figured this out, but it's also clear there's an epigenetics component. I mentioned how people's this, the, it's called DNA methylation. The, these modifications on DNA, they change over time. Uh, and it's very, very clear. You can actually predict someone's biological age based on these modifications. It's, it's very incredible. This um, group, uh, guy Steve Horvath has the best one. They call them aging clocks. So you can tell whether you're like biologically older or younger than your chronological age. The age you are in years can be different from your biological age, uh, and meaning you can be either healthier or less healthier. And, um, and you can measure that from these clocks. And people who get nasty diseases like AIDS or actually cancer will actually inc- accelerate their aging, it's been shown. And so um, one of the things our lab has done by doing these deep profiles I mentioned on people, we can actually see how they're aging and everybody's aging differently, similar to what I said, but we can add a lot more detail. We find some people are more cardio agers, some are metabolic agers, some have their immune system aging, some are all the above. They'll have all kinds of aging going on. So I'm at, for example, I'm a liver, kidney and and metabolic ager. I'm not much of an immune ager. That's a good meaning. My immune system's aging very slowly. And we think this information is potentially actionable that if you, for example, thought you were a cardio ager, well, maybe you better, you know, watch, exercise more, watch how you exercise. Uh, and, and if you're a kidney ager, well, maybe you should be drinking more water. If you're 
a liver age, or maybe you shouldn't be doing so much binge drinking. So there's, there's various things that you could probably do to mitigate that. So we, we think it's, it's only a matter of time in the future as we collect these kinds of data, we'll be able to see how people are aging. That's something we can do now in the lab. And I think it's going to be very powerful for modifying people's lifestyle. I also think in the future, it's been suggested, and I think this is true, that people are born today, mostly will live to be 100 or longer because we're getting better at living longer and longer. Uh, these days, if somebody dies in their 60s, we say, oh, they died young. But the reality is, uh, um, you know, uh, today, if somebody, yeah, sorry, in, in the old days, if somebody died in their 60s, they say, oh, they died of old age. Now, if they die in their 60s, you say they died young. Uh, so we're used to people living longer, and that's only going to increase. Yeah, what what causes us to actually age though? Like, what have we have we discovered? Like, what's the what are the triggers? Is there some type of biological thing that causes us to age? In general? Well, that's yeah, a good question. It's been several things have been suggested. One is you have cells undergo senescence; they're programmed to die after say forty divisions or so, and that we we run out of those, or or actually, sorry, the senescent cells. Sorry, we. We actually have too many, and some people say, well, if you can get rid of those, you'll actually get more rejuvenated cells and live longer. That's been one proposal. Other things is DNA damage is thought to be a factor. So if your, your DNA is getting damaged, for example, by you know UV light or other things, that's clearly going to create problems. Another is there's something called caloric restriction, your nutrients and how much you eat. Uh, can uh, It's thought to affect your aging. So in most organisms, except for humans, hasn't been shown that if you actually starve them a little bit, they live longer, okay? So it's, it's called caloric restriction. You give them less calories, they live longer. That actually hasn't shown up so well for humans, although it's pretty clear if you overeat in humans, you're obese, you actually will live shorter. So, so the, the other side of that is pretty clear. But uh, anyway, so we, we don't fully understand. There are signaling mo uh, pathways associated with caloric restriction that may help improve your, again, your immune system. Uh, maybe it's helping affect your stem cells so they stay healthy and replenish your, your organs, things like that. Yeah, you also mentioned earlier that, you know, you know when we're talking about, you know, certain viruses, right? They may cause some type of like damage to the actual DNA. Right. Like, so does that, could that actually be causing you to, you know, age and stuff like that too as well? When it's you get possible, these, these yeah. viruses? It's, it's possible. Yeah. Again, very underexplored. Oh, that's crazy. And then what do you know about like the what, NAD? Uh, yeah. It's uh, you know, it's uh, uh, an antioxidant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, that's being used as, so it, it's pretty clear that antioxidants, I, th I think, yeah, you're probably thinking from the nutrition side, uh, antioxidants or other nutrients that are probably healthy for you. Uh, NAD is one of those. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I was reading that it also like helped, you know, you know, fix the DNA and stuff like that. So, yeah. well, it probably prevents it from damaging as much. So oxidative mm. damage is a problem. So, uh, yeah. Meaning so, oxygen? Uh, um, it's a certain kind of oxygen. Yeah. Uh, it's especially like, well, peroxide's a, probably the most extreme example, but yeah, um, basically, yeah, so radicals, if you will, that come out <laughs> off of oxygen that will that damage your DNA. So, so oxidative stress, yeah, can lead to DNA damage, and uh, so keeping so it's thought that these antioxidants are are useful for you, 
And that's why some of the vitamins kick in too. They're probably good antioxidants. Yeah, because I've heard like, you know, oxygen actually causes us to age too as well. And I've also heard a bunch of different things can actually cause us to age. And it's just like, you know, I know there's a bunch of investors like Peter Till, who's, you know, investing in these type of, you know, long longevity types of of, of uh, startups and things like that. Series, Switching huge. the blood out and, yep. you know. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's, this is a huge area of investment right now. There's um, something like over a billion dollars per quarter being put into these startups on, on longevity. And uh, yeah, because you have a certain set of the population that's pretty wealthy getting older and they'd like to keep it that way. They, they don't want to get older. They want to stay healthy, I should say. Right. So um, there's a lot of money going into longevity. Uh, and, and there's also a lot of research now going in that direction. Isn't it weird though, and you know that some species exist longer than we do. For example, sharks. Yep. You know, how do they get to genetically live longer than us versus us? Like, why Boy, we, we all wish we knew, didn't? Yeah, naked mole, mole, mole rats are another one, and clams are may live forever for all we know. Certain kinds of clams. Yeah. So, yeah, how that works? There, people are trying to study this to figure this out. It's a great question. Yeah, they don't. I mean, I don't know if they're living forever because we're eating them. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm eating them. I'm loving clams. Well, I don't. Yeah, well, not. Yeah, but not those ones living up in the Arctic. I don't think they're getting fish. Ah, yeah, so that's much. true. So, yeah, that's a while. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's just crazy because I always wonder, like, you know, how how in depth have we looked and researched? What are these triggers in these certain animals who their lives? You know, they're living four hundred. You know, there's turtles and stuff like that living. You know, a long time, and it's like we're just. Well, basically living about to be 80 to 90, roughly, if we're lucky. Yeah, what's going on there? I don't know. Those people are trying to look into those as model organisms, if you will, for trying to understand exactly that. Yeah, I think that's a, that's, that's a, that is an interesting one. How do we extend life and, you know, how do we yeah, you know, get really a Yeah, really what you want to do, too, is extend what's called health, health span. Yeah, yeah extend, extend health span, not just lifespan, because uh, – yeah, ideally you'd have people live a long, long time, very, very healthy, and then just die so they don't hang in there in a very, you know, debilitating state. Right. So how important is uh, health data? Uh, hugely important, we think. I mean, I think uh, your health data is all about, you know, <laughs> going to make pr predictions, going to see uh, what you're at risk for. I think what's missing in today's world, coming back to why medicine's broken, is that we don't use longitudinal measurements uh, very well. So we think getting health data, especially big data like we're trying to do, and get it very frequently, you can actually see what people's personal trajectories look like. And if you see markers shifting off, then you can actually act on it. I can give you one example of, so in our study I mentioned where we're doing these deep profiles on people, we had one person whose liver enzyme was generally low in the normal range, but normal. And then one day it jumped way up, like doubled, but it was still in the normal range. So nobody said anything to him because it's normal range. But he actually mentioned to me, he said, Mike, what's going on here? Why is my liver enzyme jumped up? And I said, well, gosh, I don't know, but go back in another week and see if it even gets higher. And sure enough, it went out of range. So what mattered there was seeing the shift from the person's normal baseline. And because he saw that, now in his case, he did. He said, all right, I'm going to go vegetarian. And he did, and it solved the problem. Now, why that worked and how that worked, nobody knows. But he took action on that. He actually 
solve this problem before I ever got any symptoms. And that's exactly what we want to do. We want to have people catching these things when as soon as something goes off so you can try and make adjustments and keep people healthy. That's the goal. Yeah, I was I was in the you know, I went to the doctor, got my normal blood work, you know, I get it every 6 months roughly. And you know, I went there and the, and the doctor was like, "Hey, you know, uh yeah, I don't know your 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 red blood cells look a little bit variant. Look doesn't look normal. We need to Maybe you need to send you to like, I don't know, this is warning me. And your vitamin D3 is low too as well. You just need to make sure that, you know, you take the supplement because the darker your skin is, the more, I mean, the less sun you are able to absorb, especially when you're working in the house. So this is like four years ago and I started taking the vitamin D3. Then she gave me a suggestion to go to uh, the, the the Stanford like cancer place. And so I was like, oh man, for a whole month, I'm waiting for this appointment. I was like, holy shit. Well, what were they measuring at the cancer place? What they, were they she said for? something about my, I think it was, she said something about my red blood cells were, were not, or white blood cells. One of them weren't, wasn't as high as normal. Mm. And, it, and it was odd to her. Okay. And so she wanted to get that checked out. She said, All this right. could be serious. This could be, could be some yeah, type of cancer. It might have been thing. the white blood cells. And I'm yeah, not yeah. quite sure. But anyway, so I presume it came out fine. I went there. I took vitamin D3 yeah. for a month. Right, got up my baseline of where I should be, and you know when I went back, the doctor was like, "Well, I don't know what the hell's you know." He didn't say the hell, but you know, I don't know what you know what's what's going on. He said, uh, "You know, it, it, it's this, well, your this is blood different. cells got back to normal. It was normal. Yeah, all right. I mean, I'm not sure if that related to vitamin D3 or not. I wasn't uh, either. Yeah, but he asked, he asked me what did I do, and I was like. Honestly, I took the only thing I did was take vitamin D three, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, to replace yeah. that sunlight. You know, that's the only thing I did, like right. literally. Yeah, you know, and I don't know. Well, that's a connection I'm not familiar with. So yeah, I, neither am I. Yeah, but I mean, so, I have no connection on that. Yeah. I just, but I just anyway, know. Well, I'm glad it returned back right? to normal. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't be here, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't be here. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you know. Anyway, I think that's a classic case where they they saw something was off while you were still. Didn't have symptoms. You're still generally healthy, and I think that's the key for medicine of the future. I think that's why these deep profiles we're doing. I envision a world in the future where you get up, you do a little pinprick of blood, get a lot of biochemical measurements, and then with your wearables, you can get a good, a pretty good portrait of your profile, your health profile. That you know, just like you when you turn on the car, you can see you know, all the readings right, that right. they find. And to me, that's where medicine should be so that everything's, you know, all systems go. And if something doesn't look right, you don't panic. You just say, all right, something seems shifted. I better go get that checked out. And uh, maybe it's all fine. And maybe there is something up that's, you know, like your vitamin D3. Right. I mean, you like you're solve. you're talking more about like preventative measures, Correct. right? To take before we actually get to that point, which is imperative. This is something that we should all yeah, should be doing. Absolutely. We, it would be true health care, not sick care. Preventative care. Right. <laughs> totally agree. That's something we should all be doing. We should definitely be doing that. But one thing that I found is like, you know, when I'm wearing like wearables, I think things like Neuralink would be like something that would be, because uh, I'm trying to think of like the user experience. Yeah. Like carrying a lot of watches and things like that, it, it, it's cool, but then it gets to be like this this thing because the batteries die. Yeah. You know, um, you always have to remember to put it on. You know, um, maybe you want, you, you might not want to take it when you're using the shower. Right. So there's, there's times you don't want these things on you, but when there's something that's installed into the brain or in the body somewhere that can automatically detect these, whether it's some type of pill or whatever it may be, these things seem, seem to be not so much of a, of a variation of my, our, our, our day-to-day pattern. 
Right. And I think like when I start talking about the watches, that kind of disrupts my day-to-day pattern. Yeah, no, you have to spend energy. You can imagine what I do. I have eight of these devices I use every day. You do. And so I wind up spending 15 to 20 minutes every day just dealing with my devices. So obviously that's not for the average person, but I'm doing it as part of my research too because ultimately, first of all, I'd like to get it down to one device or maybe two depending on what you want to measure. Uh, but then you raise another good point. Maybe the future is really what's called implantables, where you put something in under your skin, get all the same measurements, never have to think about it. It automatically recharges, or you just put something over top of it on top of your skin periodically to charge it up. So I would agree the more you can keep it minimal effort, the more compliance you're going to have from the person. You know, the more we can deal with other things uh, rather than worrying about our watches. <laughs> right, because as a product person, I'm always thinking about the actual human experience. Sure. You know, like how how does this work within my workflow and day to day? And like, you know, when I'm doing things, you know, like how does this, does this disrupt my flow? Right. Does it make it more cumbersome or is it like, does yeah, it, how so does it? Yeah, so if that's the case, for if it is cumbersome, like you say, people are going to use it. I think though, as people get older, they get a lot more concerned about their health. You're pretty young still. So I think as people, especially when they hit their 50s, I think mortality is really hitting. And so I, I think they're willing to spend a little extra effort. They're certainly willing to spend more money. People are spending more money on these things. Come you know, come from people who are more affluent who are getting older, quite frankly, and have the money to try and spend on their health. So uh, I, I think it'll, uh, yeah, so it depends where you are in your life. Spain, yeah, no, 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 I totally agree. But I think that even even a, a person who is at the age of 50 enjoys peace of mind and the quality of life and the less things to remember to do, you know, any sure. type of like thing you have to do that seems like repetitive and it seems like it's a, it's a chore. It, it, it seems to be uh, not really disruptive, but in a, just, 100% yeah. agree. Yeah, it's called passive monitoring. The more you can do it without knowing it, the, uh, the better off we are. Yeah, especially today in life. Pings, yeah. I mean, the COVID detection thing I told you earlier, where you actually still have to click on the app to see whether it's a red alert day or not. Uh, pretty soon we'll have it switched where we ping you if it's a red alert. Wait, day. so the app is it got active app that it works right now? Oh yeah, yeah. You can if you rolled in our study, we can you can tell whether you're getting red alert days versus green. Green is good. Red is that's green. cool. You're shifting. How do we oh, do yeah. that? I want to do Sign it. Sign up for innovations.stanford.edu/slash wearables. Yeah, I got to do that for sure. So I don't know if we can put that up on your. We, uh, we got to put. We'll put in the link for sure. Perfect. So yeah, you gotta let we, me know. We definitely want that because we want to get as many people as possible. Because at the end, I want to be able to tell the difference between a mental stress and a respiratory virus. I'm, quite confident we should be able to do that from the different kinds of data. Uh, and so we'll just get more sensitive, more precise in our in flagging things. Right. The more data you're going to get, you the better it. you're going to get. You're going to get smarter yep. with AI. So absolutely totally makes sense. Yeah. It's going to be cool. Yeah. See, cause that was something like when we were doing biomarker, we, you know, we were really trying to really just get to this point where we can actually predict these things as far as like supplements health. But then we were, some of our future goals was what you were actually doing right now, which is, yeah. Yeah. This type of preventative and now you're hitting things. something important. A lot of these supplements, uh, you know, they're snake oil, uh, <laughs> and so if how you know if they're working, right? There's a lot of stuff out there like that. People take it because people say, "Oh, uh, somebody important recommended this, therefore it must be good." But you don't know, and that's the power of like monitoring things with wearables. You can do that yourself. You can see if you have more energy or just walking more steps or not. A very simple test for. You know, if you have more energy, you're probably moving around more. 
Uh, so there's a lot of stuff you can do to actually, you can do yourself to see if things are working. And I think that's a big deal because what works for you may be different from what works for me. And the only way to know that is to be following this on individual level. Yeah. I mean, that I, I totally get it. I think that's awesome. I mean, I think in general, when we're talking about testing, you know, people like, well, there was one thing that we ran into that was really weird. I mean, I don't want to say it was weird, but it was unique in that we never thought that we'd run across it. And it didn't, this was roughly about like five years ago. And what it was, was that we had some of the people that were, you know, utilizing the app and they were doing some of these tests and Hey, they came back with some errors or certain supplements weren't, weren't, um, or the data that we were pushing out wasn't so accurate. And it turns out they were actually taking hormones. Oh, and so we detected that we figured out, okay, wait, so there you go. (laughs) (laughs) The data told you what was going on. So now I had to change the actual user experience and then think about the terminology and how that would be, you know, consumer friendly. Right. Uh Cause there were people that were, you know, trans. And then it was like, you know, how do you get them to actually, you know, put in that information because that information has to be, you know, politically correct for them. right? Right. So you had to figure out how do you term how do you how do you how do you create the right message or terminology on these CTAs that's going to allow them to feel comfortable to put that information. And right. so that was just like a tricky little loophole. Yeah, that is tricky what people are going to share is you know, it is tricky. It's well known people underreport the amount of alcohol they're drinking, right? Cuz nobody wants to say I'm drinking, you know, four drinks a day. Uh, they put down less. So this is, uh, it's an issue. But actually, if you have monitors, you can follow this stuff. Even, you know, for the case of drinking, if you have a drink, your heart rate goes up. It's pretty easy to spot. Yeah, I mean, we were doing a bunch of cool stuff like that. But I think what I ended up doing with the user experience was asking what were your what was your sex sign at birth? And then um, what, what were you know, what do you like consider yourself now or like, uh, you know, what yeah, so you have a, a, a mechanism for getting information that's valuable for what you're trying to right do. for what we do. But it took a lot of like iterations for us to get to that point. I can because imagine, people were just yeah. like, what? No, what's this? this stuff is pretty sensitive. Yeah. 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 I mean, this was before it was like, you know, something of like, like now everybody, like a lot of apps are, you know, they've, they've moved or migrated towards this, even That's applications true. for yeah, jobs. The world's a lot more open now than it was. But then it was not like, that was ago. like a, a thing that was weird when I was telling people like, I see, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> 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 about it. Yep. Yeah. I was like, no, now it's like all normal. Right. It's like, Hey, what's going right. on? We were before, but I don't know. I think it's all interesting. I think wearable technology is really important. Um, so what's next for, you know, some of what you're working on at the company? Yeah, so uh, one of the companies is QBio that actually is doing a medical version. Where I said they'll do whole body MRI and they use deep data profiling. And uh, if you look in today's world, every physician, if you ask a physician, should you do a whole body MRI? Every single one will tell you, absolutely not. Because if you do that, you're going to see nodules. Men have them in their prostate. Women have them in their ovaries. Everybody does. Uh, And my retort to that is, well, that's not the point. The point is, do you have any growing nodules? Not do you have any nodules. We all have them. And the only way you know that is by longitudinal profiling. And so that's what you can tell. So I've had whole body MRIs. I've had, I think, 14 of them over the last five and a half years. And... um, I know exactly where my nodules are. I one on my spine, you know, one on my brain. They're, they're all, we all have them, and but none of them are growing, and that's what they're all small, and none of them are growing. But if any of them were to start growing, I would see that, 
and be able to act on that. Whereas now, imagine somehow I get cancer or something like that. I go get a whole body MRI. People see those same nodules. They'd freak out. They'd say, well, maybe you're, you have cancer and it's metastasized to these other sites. But they've been there all along. But there's no way they would know that. So does that make sense? So we think it's really, really important to know what your baseline is. Yeah. And then just look for those shifts. And that's what we do. Uh, we're trying to get those companies doing this. They detected just from the first 100 plus people, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer. Pancreatic cancer is almost always found late. They found it early because they saw the shift in a person they followed over several time points. And so we don't do that today in medicine. Medicine of the future just has to have these longitudinal profiles. Now, what we don't know is how often should you get measured? How often should you have a whole body MRI? So we're starting in our, in our lab. We do lots and lots of uh, measurements and lots and lots of time points to try and figure out which ones are best. Ultimately, this will spin off into the you know, into a more user-friendly fashion because it's very expensive what we do in, in our research lab. But the company then does a distilled version of this. It's, it's a more medical streamlined action. But they've, had, they've been incredibly impactful. The company's called QBio. Uh, it's doing very, very well. I have another company that's, oops, sorry, doing uh, work with glucose monitoring. They're involved in metabolic health. They're called January AI. So they're trying to get people to actually look at glucose levels using something called continuous glucose monitoring. It's really powerful if you've ever seen this. You can tell exactly what foods spike you, and it differs for different people. So some people spiked up pasta, others the bananas. We all spike to different things. Uh, some people have incredibly good glucose control, don't spike at all. But as you get older, that's pretty rare. Uh, anyway, the point is that people spike to different foods. We can actually see that. And then we have machine learning algorithms to make predictions and make food recommendations for what you should do. These foods will spike you. These foods won't. So we think this is going to be very powerful technology in the future. So the future, in my mind, is personalized health. Try to follow people at their healthy baseline. Look for these shifts. Figure out what, what causes problems for them. Why are some people getting chronic fatigue? Something must be happening there. Can we actually set up management plans to avoid that? Uh, and this is what I'd like to see the future to be. In my world, people are going to get their genome sequenced before they're born, and we'll make predictions about their health, uh, their, their genetic risk. And then together with these biochemical and wearable measurements, we'll be able to better follow exactly what's going on with people. Again, get this 800 of a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle so we get a much clearer picture of your health. And that's the goal to do this and do it cheaply and do it for the entire planet. I know we can put a wearable device. We, the system we built, believe it or not, can handle millions of people. And you may or may not know that 3.8 billion people on the planet have a smartphone. So over half the people on earth have a smartphone and if you compare that with a wearable you have a health monitoring system for over half the planet and they're not that expensive relatively speaking they're going to get cheaper so so this is a very doable thing i like to see it happen within 10 years everybody has some sort of health monitoring system on them yeah i would love to see it too i think it's imperative for us to you know 
live healthy, long lives, you know, really being, Absolutely. you know, preventative in general. I think it's an important thing. Like, cause a lot of things that you, you know, you mentioned to me today, obviously, you know, resonate with me cause I've been a, you know, a, a hacker my entire life, no matter uh -huh. what it be, you know, whether it be, you know, understanding life, you know, whether it be, you know, thinking about terraforming Mars, <laughs> I've been doing that since I was like a kid. So cool. I've always been doing weird stuff like that. And when it was, you know, when it came to, you know, cars and vehicles, I would do some of the things that you would do. And I also do it in the medical field. When I go to my doctor, I'll go to like three different ones and find out what they say. Then I'll go uh -huh. back and research it. And I'll say, oh, I think it's morally like this. And they'll be like, oh, well, I That's no really smart because, uh, you know, the average physician has 15 minutes to figure you out. You see, that's how long you see them. They have to make a decision, act on it right away. You have all the time in the world to try and figure out, you know, what's wrong with you, what does it take to keep you healthy? And I think that's a big part of medicine of the future, that we need to have people be very engaged themselves so that they can actually take responsibility for their own health because they can just do it so much, much better than a physician can. doesn't mean physicians, they don't go away when you add wearables and things. They're, they're just going to help you with more information, and that'll be valuable for everyone. I mean, you know, here's the thing. I've I've realized, you know, through experience that every doctor doesn't know everything. Every mechanic doesn't. And there's no expert in every single person. There's some people that more that have more like this this empathic type of like senses in a way to like kind of know more. I think it's more like this, and they might be a little bit more accurate. Like for example, even like with cars, like I I would always go to you know, take my car to a certain mechanic and they would tell me, oh no, it's this or it's that. And I go to three different ones. They'd all tell me something different. <laughs> so then when I started doing, I was like, all right, I'm going to go to this auto zone, get them to plug out the little, you know, the little testing thing that allows you to test the whole system and, you know, with all the systems and run the car for about 30 or 20 minutes, whatever it is. And tell you like, Hey, it's probably these things. And then what I would do is I would go read a book that was uh, for the actual, the manual for the car. And then I would say, Hmm, I, I think it's this one. And then I would just tear the car apart and just fix it. And then I'm like, hey, I saved me $3,000 just to do this. And I did this in my backyard or whatever. And I would do the same thing when it came to, you know, as much as possible when it came to things in the medical field. You know, Yeah, 100% agree. I, I think we're very aligned that way. I think, first of all, the fact you said, well, we'll take hook it up to this AutoZone thing that make many, many <laughs> measurements. I think, right, that's what we should be doing on people, making lots of measurements to see what really does, what does their health state look like while they're healthy? And if something's off, you can see it. And like you say, if something does go off, well, you should be an active part in trying to figure out what's wrong and, and see what you can do to correct that. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, it's been a great conversation. It's been a great conversation. But I wanted to leave with this right here. You mentioned medicine isn't broken in a lot of different ways. It's very focused on treating people when they're ill and very reactive, very costly. We should be focused on keeping people's or keeping people's health. I mean keeping people healthy, excuse me, but we have to understand what it means to be healthy. What does that mean? Yeah, I, uh, just what it says. Uh, we want to be. If I should be able to do a profile on you, and see that you know your baseline looks pretty stable. There's no weird markers going off, and I do that consistently over time. And by taking many, many measurements, we should be able to get again a pretty accurate picture of your health. That's the goal. And uh, if something does shift. Hopefully we can tell, you know, what's going on. It doesn't mean we'll be able to fix it, but I hope we can. Uh, but you have a better chance of fixing it if you see something shift and when you catch it right away, then you'll be able to do uh, if you let it get bad. 
just like your car, you right? You don't put the transmission oil in there, and the uh, you know the thing gets worse and worse, and you wait till it goes totally broken. Well, then you need a whole transmission. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and I, I would say probably, you know, as as you're going on this journey to you know, I should build say this, transmission fluid. I guess there you sorry. go. Yeah, but <laughs> the difference transmission fluid. Certain transmission fluid doesn't work in all cars. You know, you get the one for Chevrolet. Well, Chevrolets. there you go. Get the it's a different one. one. It'll, it'll blow up your car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not a mechanic, so you're you're treading outside my comfort zone. Hey, well, neither am I. But I learned through experience, like yeah. trying everything and testing them out. Yeah. I was like, oh wow, you know that cost me five thousand dollars because I put the wrong transmission fluid Ouch. in there. Yeah, that would be a painful <laughs> lesson. But yes, that does happen. Yeah, it happens. But you know, you learn through experience. That's what life's about. And I think that's what being a scientist is about. And oh, you know, for a, sure, a person yeah. of the world. Is, I love what I do. Obviously, yeah. Obviously, I mean, you've got yourself all hooked up. Like you're literally like you know halfway in the matrix. <laughs> okay, I never thought of it that way, but yes, I am very hooked up and very always trying to learn from uh, everything I do. Yeah, Michael, if, if anybody knows about themselves, I think it would be you. <laughs> I have two petabytes of data around me. That's a lot. So. Yeah, so it's been great to have you on the actual podcast. It's been amazing. I know I've been trying to get you here for about a month or so. I know we had some some little mix-ups and trying to get our time right, but we got in here and we did it. And so it's, uh, I'm grateful to have you here on the actual pod. And uh, yeah. Oh, it's been a lot of fun for me. So I'm glad we did it too. It yes. And, and I want to say again, where can people reach you again, just in case if they want to hear it again? Yeah. So uh, you can sign up for the wearable study by uh, innovations.stanford.edu slash wearables. You can also reach out to me in my email and I'll forward you. We have a whole series of studies ongoing so you can visit our website at michael snyder at stanford uh you'll you'll see them there and if you have any questions just email me awesome great to have you ladies and gentlemen the kids in the room podcast, the kids in the room podcast. that's right that's right brought to you by move faces tv let's, let's go, go.